Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. My guest today comes from a previous successful career in investment banking at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Having worked her way up to executive director and becoming one of the most senior black women in a client-facing role at the bank's European hub, she then went on to start various property-related businesses, as well as projects looking to empower groups that have historically been underrepresented in the property and investment industries. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome Isha Afori. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming. Obviously, we're here to talk about asset-backed investments and with yep. a focus on, on property. So do you want to just give us a brief intro into mm-hmm. how you got into, into real property. estate and the property yep. world, mm-hmm. having come from this corporate background of investment yeah. banking? So I actually think, you know, compared to a lot of people that I speak to, I got into property, what I would say is late. I became a sort of partial um, property owner because I own a property with my mother, and that happened many, many years ago, but that wasn't intentional by any means. And this was an investment property? Or, no, or it, where you actually lived. where we lived. Yeah, okay. Great. And so that was, I guess, the sort of very first property that I owned. Yeah. Um, but as I said, from my perspective, wasn't really um, intentional at all, and I wasn't really looking at, at, looking at it as an investment property. Um, it wasn't until, you know, much later when I'd actually been um, already working at Goldman Sachs and I was having a chat with my husband one day and I sort of said, look, I've got a bit of money, you've got a bit of money, it's sitting in the bank. As bankers, we both know that's the last place your money should be. (laughs) What are we going to do with it? And he said, you know, go away and come up with some creative ideas. And I was a wealth advisor to ultra high net worth individuals and, you know, I was trained to invest money in a certain way. So I did what I do with my clients and I came up with this lovely balanced portfolio and I said to him, you know, we should have X percent of equities, X percent of bonds and a little bit of PE, hedge funds, currencies, blah, blah, blah. And he said, absolutely not. He says, uh, you know, and he was like, why on earth would I want to put my, you know, my money in something like that? You know, we're in wealth building mode. We need to be, you know, a bit more aggressive. And I was like, you're absolutely right. And so I went away again and I was actually having a conversation with somebody who had started investing in property when she was at university. And the more I spoke to her, little things started going off in my head. And then I was digging more and more, asking her about numbers and risks and how she manages things. And I said, I think there's something there. So I went away and I did a lot of sort of just personal research myself. And then the more I researched, I was like, you know, this can't be like, how is it possible to be getting these sorts of returns and things like this? Whereas I knew typically what you'd be getting in, you know, an equity portfolio, depending on your risk, etc. So I went back to my husband and I said, we've got to get into property. And he says, why? And I explained it to him. And he was like, no, not interested. You know, started talking about crashes and various things. And I sort of said to him, no, you really have to look at this. He's like, not interested, not interested. So I did what I do best. I built an Excel model. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I put an example of a property investment in terms of, you know, how much it would cost, Mm -hmm. what, you know, potential risks are, what returns could be. And I sent him the model. And I mean, he speaks Excel too. So he looked at it (laughs) and he says, you know, your numbers can't be right. You must have made a mistake somewhere. I said, I, I was an Excel monkey. Like, I don't make mistakes like like this in Excel. 
I'm telling you, this is, you yeah. know, how it works. And I guess that was the beginning. From then on, we... Then, then he was on board and we were mm-hmm. both actively, um, you know, really focused and interested in property. And we just started doing more and more research. And for us, we started by building a buy-to-let portfolio. Mm-hmm. I think it's what a lot of people do when you're yeah. kind of starting and getting out. Barriers so to entry are slightly lower because exactly. it's more, people know about it. Exactly. And, and it's, yeah. it's the thing that you've heard about when yeah. you think of a landlord, you know, lots of people do it. So it seems a little bit less scary. Um, So that was where we started. And in terms of like the actual first properties we bought, for me, when I sort of solve any kind of problem, I do a lot of sort of research and analysis and there needs to be a strategy behind it. Mm -hmm. And I applied those same principles to getting started in property. So my first thing was like, right, what area? And then why a particular area? So I was looking for things where there was either an infrastructure play or would there be sort of local government spending or regentrification, something that was going to sort of change the area. So I did what a lot of people did, um, and I looked at Crossrail. I did think, well, everyone's been talking about it for years. Like, surely I've missed this boat by now. But the more research I did, I was like, actually, some of it has been priced in, but in actual fact, quite a lot comes in when it actually starts running. Mm -hmm. Um, So then I was looking at all the Crossrail stations, sort of crossed out all the ones in Zone 1 because I wouldn't be able to afford anything. And then I started looking around sort of Abbey Wood. That was where I was going to start. But then I noticed that Woolwich actually had the DLR and other things already. So I said, the infrastructure here is just better. So let me focus on that. So then I started doing due diligence trips. I saw that it was, I think it's um, Berkeley Homes had a massive development there. So I was like, well, that's a good sign. (laughs) And then one thing that I noticed was across the other side of the road, there was like a market, you know, the market where you can buy like... I don't know, trousers for like a fiver and things yeah. like that. And then there was sort of like, you know, chicken shops, yeah. Iceland. And then I'm like, right, so you have this incredible development on one side and then you have all these sort of lower end retail units on the other. And I'm like, well, clearly all of this has to be changed. Mm-hmm. And then that means that even the existing properties in the area, their prices are going to start to yeah. go up too. The whole area has to change. And so that's why we decided... Um, to focus on Woolwich. So we started with two bed, two bath apartments that were existing. Um, I was tempted by the Berkeley development and we got one of those too. I'm not a fan of new build, but I'm like, go on, let's let's get one of those. Um, But we focused mainly on the existing stock. And the funny thing is that with the very first purchase we made, as soon as we had bought it, I had buyer's remorse. Not because I necessarily thought we'd done anything wrong or I didn't believe my analysis. It was just that because it was our very first property yeah. purchase, it's like, did we did we overpay? Like, oh, the agent is clearly working with the seller. Like, oh, we should have... I, I think if you don't get that feeling, though, <laughs> there's probably something wrong. If you're way too confident, That's very you true. might not... That's very yeah. true. Um, so then I was like, oh, you know, I think, you know, we've definitely overpaid for this. Like, and I was like, oh. But what actually happened was, probably about three, four months later, another flat came up in the same block for about £15,000 more. So I was like, yes. I was like, oh, we bought at a great price. We did so well. And my husband's like, three months ago, you were saying something else. (laughs) And so then we bought another and another. So altogether, I think we got three in that block. And then a fourth came up and we were going to buy it. But then we were like, oh, you know, we don't want to be too concentrated in the same block. We need to diversify, putting our banking hats on. With hindsight, we should have brought everything that came up. So it's interesting that you've kind of, you talked about looking at things with your banking hat on. And yeah. we, got, we actually kind of touched on this before mm-hmm. we started recording. But I think it's really interesting when people look at 
investment in this for their for their for themselves rather than say for one of your ultra high net worths. Mm-hmm. How you structure that portfolio is obviously going to be different because yep. I think you you mentioned it's whether you are in wealth building mode versus mm-hmm. wealth preservation mode. Absolutely, and it's there's a point at which diversification maybe might be quite inefficient mm-hmm. uh, in terms of that. So No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think it's very important for people to recognise, you know, where they are in their wealth cycle. Yeah. You know, the two main distinct areas are wealth creation and wealth preservation. The sort of questions you ask yourselves and the decisions you typically take will be very different depending on which cycle you're personally in, even though you are the same person. Mm-hmm. And I think that... I guess for, for for me, when we started to build our portfolio, we were very much in wealth creation mode. Mm. But we always have this thing about consider the risks, you know, diversify, diversify, diversify. And it's hard for me to switch those things off because I grew up in a bank. I constantly have those things at the forefront of my mind. But as I said, with hindsight, we should have bought every single flat in that park. So, so I'm, I'm very similar in my way of thinking to you. Mm-hmm. And actually, sometimes it's getting over that fear of, or not so not fear, but that way of thinking about risk. And yep. the way I like to do it is I look at, right, what would be my earning potential? Mm-hmm. So let's say I, I don't know, I, I was a burger flipper in McDonald's for minimum wage. Mm-hmm. And that's what my earning potential could be because I've got no qualifications and that's it. Worst case scenario, how long is it going to go? Is it going to take me to go back, work that job and mm-hmm. raise that money? And that's really where I base my risk from. Okay. So if I'm looking at what I could possibly lose, yep. it's how long is that going to take me to get up? Okay, I like that. that. That's so interesting. if, if okay. for example, I've, I've got 30 grand to lose, yep. then actually... I can probably make that back in not too. So you look at future. your, I guess, opportunity cost. Where could you make that money elsewhere? Mm, not so much elsewhere because I don't want to go flipping burgers <laughs> at McDonald's. But <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at right worst case scenario. That's mm-hmm. what I'm going to have to do to go and get back. So if that's yep. my worst case scenario, then it's actually not this, that bad. It's not so, that bad. Yeah. And then you're looking at things like well. What am I risking on debt, for example, if I've got a mm-hmm. PG up? Am I risking the total amount of debt? Unlikely, because yep. you kind of look at the probabilities. I, I think, think people do get caught up in I that. I completely agree yeah. with what you're saying, and it's it's the rational approach. Mm-hmm. And when I recognise what I'm doing and I catch myself, I remind myself not to do it, but sometimes yeah. for me it's just so well, it's unconscious. It's easier said than done, yes, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. I, I'm, I'm the same, I, mm-hmm. I struggle that's one of yep. my biggest... Because I think for me I was trained to look for risks. Yeah. Um, so you, you're given an investment, you're given something, go and find the problems. What are the risks in this? And it's the very first thing I start looking for and I dig and dig and pick holes and pick holes. So at some point even for me it's not helpful necessarily because I'm just finding all the reasons to talk myself out of doing something. Absolutely. And that kind of brings me on to my next question. We're kind of getting into it already, which is, so what are some of maybe the benefits Mm -hmm. of coming from that corporate background Mm -hmm. um, when it came to starting Mm -hmm. and scaling your own business? Yeah. And also, were there any negatives? Um, I'd say that definitely positives in terms of I guess just how I look at deals or investment opportunities, how I analyze them. Um, I think, you know, I look at things in a very sort of structured way, just in the same way as I would look at an investment um, for one of my clients when I was in banking. 
But I think I've touched upon this before. You know, I have a tendency to really focus on the risks, which when you're working for a client is absolutely what they want you to do, right? But when it's yourself, then maybe you should be taking, or or, I don't need to be as risk averse necessarily. So sometimes trying to remind myself just to ease off a bit is something that I don't do as much, but I definitely need to be doing more of. Also, is it maybe a bit about control? And and like we said again before we start recording, the difference between direct and indirect investment is that actually you are the business that is creating that income for the investor. It just so happens that you are also the investor. So again, there's more control. There's a lot more effort Mm -hmm. that goes in. It's like that sort of continuum of, of reward versus risk, but also effort. Normally, if you want the, the reward to go up, you either increase the risk or increase the effort. Absolutely. And, um, Absolutely. and I think that's something that you can't really do when you're investing for ultra-high net worth in certain portfolios. Exactly. You can't really increase the effort beyond due diligence because you're not the operator. Whereas for my own things, I, I absolutely can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's a big, a big difference when it mm-hmm. comes to sort of, again, the investment side of, of portfolios. Yeah, I think just generally going, you know, going back to the question, I think definitely positives in terms of some of the things that I've been able to sort of take from the corporate world and Mm. then overlay on the investing world in terms of sort of deal due diligence, deal structuring, you know, how much leverage do you use and that and that kind of thing. So definitely positives. But I do sometimes feel that I've been, I was in a corporate for so long. It's so rigid and inflexible (laughs) that when I've now come to, you know, the property world and I'm working for myself... I still kind of put myself within this sort of rigidity, but I don't need to. I can be more fluid. I can be more flexible. Um, I just need to remind myself to keep doing that. And I think a lot of people that do come from corporate backgrounds that start these businesses do see an opportunity in the market really for that flexibility. Mm-hmm. Certainly that seems to be something you've Ab- No, absolutely. Yeah. You know, property has, you know, it's the biggest asset class in the in this country. It's been around for, for years and years and years, but... In terms of regulation and things like that, it's just it, compared to the financial sector, it's you know leagues or eons behind. Yeah. And so there is opportunity. It kind of it reminds me a bit of a conversation that I had with one of my MDs when I was in banking, and he loved to tell stories about the heydays in finance before you know all the mountain of regulation that, that they're under. Before the FCA came and ruined the party for everyone. <laughs> well, basically, that's what he said. And he was he used to, he'd love to, like, we'd sit on the desk and he'd be like, oh, you know, 25 years ago and I would do this and this is how it worked and this happened and this happened. I wouldn't say property is exactly like that, but I kind of liken it to a stage where there isn't so much regulation and things like that at the moment. And to be very frank, it does bring opportunities. Mm. But at the same time, it means people need to be careful. Although you, I think you're talking about the investment side, but then if you mm. turn to the operational side, I know some landlords that might disagree with you about yeah. the <laughs> legislation. And certainly yep. over the last couple of years, yep. the, the cost of getting legislation wrong has started yep. to increase. No, absolutely. Well, yeah. So one, one of the things that I tend to think about just... I guess, regulation and legislation, it tends to be more reactionary. Mm. It's generally after something has happened, then the regulator or whichever body says, oh, that went wrong, so let's go in and do something about that. And then they tend to over-regulate, usually because 
the people coming up with the solutions aren't in the, I th- the yeah, sector? I, I think another big problem is actually is not the regulation itself, it's the implementation of Absolutely. that regulation. And yep. what often happens is they put down some regulations, mm-hmm. they're not implemented properly. And mm-hmm. instead of actually focusing on the implementation, they yep. then say, oh no, that regulation's not fit for purpose, we need a new regulation, exactly. and the cycle just continues. Yep. So continues. just to be clear... I personally think the property sector, particularly the investment side, needs some regulation. Absolutely. I won't disagree with Um, that. (laughs) It's just a question of what kind of regulation and how it comes in and how it's implemented. Historically, whether I look at, you know, whatever sector, particularly finance, it hasn't been done in the necessarily the best or the most Mm. efficient way. You kind of get there eventually. But that's historically what happened. And I think with property, we'll probably see the same thing. At some point, I feel something is going to be done. Well, yeah, I think... I think uh, One would hope. I think it takes a few people to get burned, a few casualties. And yes. I think that's what we're seeing at the moment, especially yep. in the southeast. Yep. Okay, so on to my next question, which okay. um, obviously with your corporate background in investment mm-hmm. banking, you clearly... Have a pretty good knack for raising capital. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the stats was you raised three hundred million or something. Yeah, like so that. it's it's interesting. So altogether, I was managing five hundred million. Yeah. But of that, three hundred and fifty million was assets that I sourced from clients that I found that yeah. people that I'd never met, sort of my own generated um, assets that I brought in, and then the rest were existing clients so taking those skills yep. into property mm-hmm. what tips would you give to sort of our listeners about mm-hmm. raising capital in that in that way for, for yeah, property yeah this is deals? this is um it, this is an interesting one because typically the people who are raising money tend to be sort of developers and if you are a developer then your main focus is developing right and I've met quite a lot of people who kind of feel like, oh, yes, I'm a developer, but I can just tack on the fundraising side at the end. Like, it's a completely different business. It is, as I said, a business on its own. It needs a completely different skill set. It's not something you kind of do in the back of your mind or, you know, oh, yeah, I've got to go and raise X amount from, you know, so-and-so. People need to recognize it for what it is. Um, it's something that needs to be focused on. It takes a certain skill set. It takes time um, and it's not something to be sort of done done lightly I personally feel that either you should have if you're a developer you should have somebody within your team or organization and that is their role yeah or there are other things available to you such as crowdfunding or whatever it is to to go and do that but if you are a developer and you want to take it on yourself that's absolutely fine but then you have to do it properly mm. and you have to dedicate the right amount of time and resources to doing it. You know, I've heard horror stories about how, you know, investors have lost money or just haven't been treated. You know, I did a, de- um, a development myself with a JV partner and we often butted heads on the lack of communication to the investor. Or in this case, it was actually like, right, I am essentially the investor because I've put the money in. So this is what you should be doing. This is how you should be treating me. Whereas I find that sometimes it's like investors put their money in, developers like, yay, we've got the money. Okay, we'll see you at the end of the project. Like, (laughs) absolutely not. I think think you kind of hit the nail on the head 
at the beginning of that when you sort of talked about investment part of the business and mm-hmm. the developing part of the business yep. are two separate businesses. The developing part is that trading operational yep. part of the business that creates that income mm-hmm. and the investment part of the business, although you might be the same person, you, you might be the investor and you might be the developer, they've got to be treated as two completely separate things. Completely, and they require different skill sets. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're working with investors, it's not a quick thing. You've got to build a relationship. You've got to build trust. Now, that takes time. You have to get to know people. And the reason why it's important to get to know people is because pretty much, I'm pretty sure, something is going to go wrong in the project. Projects very rarely go that, completely to plan. Exactly. <laughs> so something is going to go wrong. How does the investor respond when yeah. things go wrong? Well, I think one of the key bits... That again you you mentioned is communication mm-hmm. and I think from the outset it's so important for developers and investors mm-hmm. to come together and agree the SLAs or whatever mm-hmm. it is their agreement of yep. how you communicate with each mm-hmm. other regardless of whether it's good news or bad news yep. are you getting weekly updates and if so in what format and things like that yeah and, and that's, I think that's quite I think developers people. need to see investors as being part of their team mm. It's not just this source that has given you money and then they kind of disappear to the end. They just be your as, finance director almost <laughs> for that project. You know, it's, it's just as you'd be regularly speaking to your architect or your PM, or you regularly speak to your investors. They're, they have a role in the well, project. They're if you think about that project as having four sectors, mainly, mm-hmm. where you've got operations, and that's the development, you mm-hmm. might have your growth and marketing and sales yep. department, your HR it's dealing you with all the people in. Relations. You need investor relations. Well, I was even going to say just finance, and within finance, yep. investor relations is a, is a massive yep. part. So yeah, yep. I think I think that's so important. I people, think people f- think the important bit is just getting the money and giving no, it back. No, not, not it's, at all. Yeah. It's it's de- it focus on investor relations, and then in terms of the finance, I think it depends on sort of how big you are. Mm. If you're doing very sort of smaller projects, then maybe you don't need somebody to do the finance role. But if you're doing, you know, deals where you're taking millions of pounds from people, then absolutely. When I say sectors, I don't mean we need different people. Mm-hmm. I can still be running the four different departments. But it's just how you but think it's about how it. Exactly. Yep. It's, yep. It's, it's understanding that, right, now I've got my finance hat on. Yep. And so this mm-hmm. is my department. And that's very difficult to do yep. when you're a small business. It's mm-hmm. actually a lot easier when you're bigger because you have less responsibilities from different yep. for different skill sets. Yep. Which, no, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I, I feel that with developers, if they don't start to embrace investors more and give them what they want, you're only going to get to a certain point. People are going to stop working with you or they're going to find somebody else who is doing it better. And I think that that sort of focus on quality and service, on communication, it, it needs to improve. Sustainable yeah. returns, because if you've got someone willing to give you money, you want them to continue to give exactly. you money. Exactly. <laughs> and I think sometimes people can be short-sighted, and it's like, oh, okay, they're giving me the money now, well, let me just do this project, and... And then I'm off to Bermuda. And then, Yeah, or then I'll go find more investors. Well, actually... If you have investors who are repeat investors and they stay with you, it makes your life much easier because you may not necessarily need to then go and find others. It's about having that longevity. And, you know, when I was in banking, some of my clients were with me for like five, six years. 
they didn't just see me as the person that sort of helped with their finances. They, you know, some of my clients would call me and be like, oh my gosh, guess what my wife did this morning? So I was seen as like a trusted advisor, almost a friend. And if you can get to that point with your investors, they will stick by you. When things go wrong or things get difficult, and if so long as you're communicating with them and you're letting them know when it happens, like they should be able to understand. If you have sufficiently explained the risks up front, if something happens, it shouldn't be a shock to them. So they should be quite accommodating in terms of how they help you to find a solution. Mm. It's when you're not up front or when you're not communicating and then a problem happens, that's when things just completely fall apart. Exactly, and that's what we've seen certainly with developers who have got into financial difficulties over the last couple of years Mm -hmm. has actually been not so much the issue when it's come up it's been how it's been dealt with and Mm -hmm. the lack of communication to the different parties involved and that's really caused this kind of snowball effect to to hurt them you mentioned at the beginning choosing Woolwich uh, and the reasons you did that infrastructure etc so what areas of UK real estate are you targeting for investment now? And are there, what reasons behind that choice? Yes, so I can answer that question in two ways because I've got my own personal portfolio mm-hmm. and then I've got the areas that I focus on working with other people. Um, in terms of personally, so after Woolwich, we did some more things in and around London. Um, we haven't bought anything in London in quite a long time, mm-hmm. um, but we've been buying quite heavily in Birmingham. Okay. Um, And I'd actually say we're at a point now where our portfolio is almost evenly split between London and Birmingham. Um, I, in the last few years, just even the things that I've seen that have started to happen in Birmingham, just for me personally, give me good signs and indications that that it's a market that's on the up. I mean, one of the things that my husband now keeps complaining about is the traffic. (laughs) He's like, oh, it took me forever to get from here to here. You know, a few years ago, this wasn't happening. Where have all these cars come from? Um, So it's little things like that that you start to see in the city um, that tells you that it's sort of moving in the right direction. So what made you choose Birmingham? Um, Again, so it goes back to when I look at an area, I look at the fundamentals. What is going on there? What are going to be the likely drivers of capital appreciation or sort of an an income play? Um, It has one of the highest student populations um, in the country. So when we first started out, we were doing focusing on student accommodation. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get to London quite quickly. It's only an hour and 25 minutes from, from Houston. Yeah. Uh, dare I say HS2? <laughs> <laughs> Although I've been... Um, we might be dead when it opens. Well, I've been told it's going to go ahead. Let, <laughs> let's see what happens. Um, the thing that really annoys me about HS2 is yeah. the fact that it's. I think the trains are going to be 220 miles per hour, but mm-hmm. it's not going to open for, another, I think, another 10 years or something like that. And, and let's it, not talk about the, the budget and how uh, much it's yeah. going to cost to actually well, get it done. But then but. in China, they've already got trains that are going almost double the speed now. So how out of date is all that going to be once it's open? I just, I just oh, but, find I mean, crazy. But I think that's just because, I mean, China are on a whole different level when mm. it comes to innovation and just how quickly they can well, build just things. Built a, I was just about to say that slight deviation in topic, but I was reading. I saw it. They're going to build two hospitals in days. I'm like, that's crazy. Well, it's it's absolutely mind-boggling, and I I kind of I put up a post the other day about it, saying, "Is this just because of lack of human rights and and deregulation Mm -hmm. that's allowing them to get this all?" The only thing I would say because it's an emergency. No, that has to be the case. But even still. 
to, to physically do groundwork. Yes. So I know, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. essentially modular and things like that, but... But even, even if it is, even if it is modular, like yeah. that shows you just if you really wanted to, mm. or if people really, how quickly can you build yeah. things? Well, it's a bit like watching DIY SOS. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, look, when people come together and they've got to get it done yep. in 10 days, it can be done. Yep. It can be done. Yep. But yeah, I, I think they probably had prelims going on for about four months before doing it. Yep. But, yep. but still, even still, it, amazing, the speed yeah. at which they've done it has been pretty incredible. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely, I think this country could have a look at China and some of the things that they're doing but yes so back to Birmingham um so yeah uh student population yeah. you know the train system infrastructure and just walking around the city mm. just seeing so many old dilapidated buildings and it's like city center like right by New Street Station so then you kind of think, well, this isn't, doesn't feel like a city centre. It's quite... Str- I, I'm, I'm totally with you. So yeah. I've done a very similar thing with, mm-hmm. with Manchester. And I think it's really hard for Londoners to go to some of these other cities mm-hmm. where we're used to the city centre being a very kind of upmarket yep. place. And, and that's not the case with a lot of other not cities. And it's really hard to get yep. your head around. The biggest thing yeah. for me was everyone gets buses <laughs> and I'm like oh and then I realised how dependent I was on the tube yeah. because for me like when I'm looking for things it's right how close are you to the tube yeah, station yeah. so then I was looking at you know certain properties or like um, development sites and it's like okay no I'm not looking for a tube station people don't care about it I mean there's no tube yeah, yeah. Um, it's more okay what's the bus route yeah. Um, so obviously you've got to do different things for the different city that you're looking at, but Birmingham just ticks so many boxes for me. And you're confident now, or, or obviously you're, you you feel that there's more growth to come as well? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, we, as I said, we haven't bought anything in London for a long time, but we're continually buying things um, in Birmingham. And you obviously feel that that offsets the extra operational expense of having to do things that are a bit further afield and yes I mean ugh, we were maybe a bit, outsourcing something we so. were a bit crazy in the beginning <laughs> and tried to manage things um, ourselves right yeah so we my husband and I we were going to Birmingham often yeah. he he still goes quite often but he actually enjoys it yeah um but what we did was we set up a team of people who can be there to help us um, manage everything that we have we chose not to get an agent yeah we felt that if we could hire people who could that we could train in the way we wanted things to be mm-hmm. run and managed that would just make more sense for us and at what point yeah. do you think you would go oh do you know what london's ready for my money now what what's stopping you from investing in london right now i'm just not it's looking at the opportunity cost so i still look at things in london yeah. but then i'm sent so many other opportunities outside and then when I look at sort of the returns and the risks, I, I'm at the moment still leaning to a lot of things outside of London. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not yet seeing things that are sort of overwhelmingly like, yes, this is this is a, a sort of slam dunk. Yeah. Um, and then it also depends on what you're focusing on. So personally, for the sort of development projects that I look at, I like to focus on things that are affordable. Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of a personal thing for me. Yeah. So in my role at Goldman, I, for want of a better way to explain it, I made rich people richer. Yeah. Um, and I kind of got to a point in my life where I said, I actually want to do something that, yes, I will still work with high net worth individuals, but I also want to help people that need help. Yeah. And so I started to think about how can I do that? And, you know, 
the affordable sector was one of those areas, I can still work with investors and give them the returns that they're looking for, but we can also build homes that are decent and that are genuinely affordable that people can that provide more of a utility exactly. than maybe... Exactly. So, and everybody, when gravy. a lot of people who meet me for the first time and they hear my background, they're like, oh, so you must do, like, Chelsea, Knightsbridge, yeah, Mayfair, yeah. Prime London. I'm saying, no, actually, I do complete opposite. Yeah. I like to focus on, as I said, things where it's about building quality, affordable homes. Mm-hmm. And it's quite funny because in the early days, when I started working with my investors, <laughs> trying to get them to look at projects, in parts of you know the country that they'd never heard of yeah they were like looking at me like i'm a bit crazy like you want me to invest my money where (laughs) where is this how am i supposed to talk about this around the dinner table (laughs) and you know so i spend a lot of time educating them that it's not it's not the postcode. If you want bragging rights, then you're looking for a completely yeah, different investment. Yeah, if you want a trophy investment, exactly. that's going to be And that's not what I'm it. about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm like, if you're looking for an investment and you're focused on your return, then this is something you should consider. The fact that you can actually do something good as well is an added benefit mm. to you. And I think ESG is something that is getting more and more... Um, popular and becoming something that's at the forefront of a lot of corporates. So that's environmental, social... Governance, yeah. Governance, yeah. It, it's sort of like, um, sort of like social, well, social, so, social responsibility. Exactly, and, yeah. exactly. Um, and well, that environmental certainly is 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 become oh massive. for sure for and, sure and, yeah. I and think, I think the social element will but it, but it helps longevity grow as well. of business too, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Yeah. And also, it's just I guess taking things away from the it's all about money and it's all about profitability. Mm-hmm. Like you can still make money and do good. Why do people think the two are mutually exclusive? So we're kind of gone off at a tangent yes. which is great <laughs> but I want to I want to keep going on this mm-hmm. so talk to us a little bit about what it is you're doing in terms of some of these yep. social enterprise and social impact projects mm-hmm. um, that you're doing so I mean, I mean I would have and yes. you've got um, yes these businesses so mm-hmm. talk to us about what they do and so again all stemming from my desire to actually want to do something t- to help people um, I will be very upfront. They're not charities. No, 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 um, yeah. They are businesses. Um, I don't have any qualms about saying that. I am a businesswoman and I do, you know, look to make ventures that I do profitable. But as I said, who says you can't make money and still yeah. do good? And that was really what I set out to do when I left Goldman. I was like, right, I've, you know, that was great. Yeah. Love my clients, had a good time. But, you know, I don't want to get to like, 70 and look back at my life and be like okay what have you done like who have you helped and you know so when I left that was kind of my driver I property is my passion I I mean live it breathe it sleep it so I knew it was going to combine all of these things um so the first business that I set up was Axiom Property Partners, which is working with high net worth individuals who want to get access to the residential market because they're looking for investment opportunities. But I like to focus on developers who can build affordable housing. Yeah. Um, after that, I set up um, two property investment communities, one called Propel Network, which is focused on women. Mm-hmm. It's about empowering women through property investment. So can you give me some examples mm-hmm. of maybe, obviously you don't need to use people's names yep. or anything, but mm-hmm. where 
I don't know, a, a woman has come to you or come yep. to, through the Propel Network mm-hmm. and the types of problems they maybe they've had? Yeah, so I can give you a couple of examples, actually. And the reason is because it's very varied and it's very unique to the individual. Mm. So what Propel does is we focus on all women. So there is a subset of our members who are experienced women in property. They're property developers or experienced property investors. They've been in property a long time. Um, they kind of know what they're doing, but maybe they want to get exposure or access to different things. They want to discuss ideas with different people to see what else is out there. Or it's about sort of how do they take their business to the next level. So, for example, um, there are two sisters who work together and they've been doing well. They've been doing OK, but they've been, they said, you know, so far, most of the stuff that we've done has been with our own money mm. or with, you know, one or two investors that we've been working with. But to really get to the next stage, we need to raise money from other people. We have no idea how to do that. Mm-hmm. So can you help? Um, so that's just one example. Um, completely other end of the scale. We have um, a lady who has historically done buy to lets. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to start doing more, but she's not quite sure what she wants to do. And because she doesn't have the experience doing anything else, she feels a bit, oh, I can't do it because I I don't know how to do it. And I think that kind of ties into one of the reasons why Propel is so important, I feel. With women, oftentimes we're quite risk averse. And if we haven't done something before, we don't necessarily feel we can do it. We'll rather sit back and wait until we get that knowledge. Whereas I think sometimes men will sort of jump in and say, I'll figure it out as I go along, we'll figure it out afterwards. So sometimes women don't progress enough just because we limit ourselves. And why do you think that is? I mean, what do you think that's changing as, as the dad of two little girls? <laughs> I, I want to try and make sure that my daughters are growing up in an environment mm-hmm. where obviously it's equal to men. Yep. But they're taking, they're jumping on those chances mm-hmm. when, they, when they arise. So I why, think... I think we just we're just different. Yeah. We just think differently and behave differently when it comes to certain things, and it's not a bad thing. Far more sensible. <laughs> I, well, you you said it, not me. <laughs> but um, we're just different, and yeah. we look at risks differently. I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think that should be changed. Mm. But we need to recognise what we do mm. so that we can then sort of override it. So just as I said, I know I'm very risk averse. So sometimes I have to mentally override that. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a lot of other women need to first recognise typically what they do be able to override it but then when you override it have that support mm. have other people around you who are a going through the same thing or who can just be supportive to kind of get you going mm. you may not need that support forever at some point you should be able to fly by yourself but it's about just giving you what you need to and also there's, get there's just like i just think having a fresh pair of eyes look at a situation that you're mm-hmm. in yep is invaluable sometimes because you can become stagnated and yep. focused on maybe the wrong thing. So it's always so useful to have someone else come, no, and, absolutely. come and check over something. Um, absolutely. And so Propel is so, so, so close to my heart and, you know, something I'm massively focused on this year. Um, it's about, as I said, empowering women through property. It's about, you know, getting women together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the community. It's about, yeah, growing together. And shouting about what we do, you know, we don't we don't do it enough. Um, you know, there are a lot of women who are doing incredible things in property, yeah. but they just don't get the platform to share what they're doing or mm. shout about it. Um, and Propel, you know, helps them to be able to to, to do that. Fantastic. Yeah. 
And was there another... There is. Um, yeah. And I set up another um, community called Black Property Network. It's actually funny. I was speaking to somebody about this yesterday. And he says, why did you call it Black Property Network? Aren't you having some issues with the name? And I said... Yes, actually, in the sense that um, some people have said to me, well, why don't you call it the BAME Property Network? Um, because the word black can sometimes make people feel uncomfortable or, you know, you, you'd probably get further with it if you change the name. And I thought about it. I completely understand what they're saying in the sense that some people will feel uncomfortable by it. I know some people do because I've been getting some Facebook messages and things like that. But then I kind of... I thought long and hard about it. Maybe we're at a point where people need to be more comfortable with saying the word black and mm. that, you know, it, it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just maybe because we've been shying away from it that it is a thing that makes people feel uncomfortable. It shouldn't. Um, and actually what we are doing, yes, we have predominantly focused on the black community, but that was one of the sort of ethnic groups that I saw the least representation. Yeah. Um, and with BAME, you know, it includes other ethnic groups, but some of those groups are actually doing quite well in property. So what, BAME is... BAME black, is black, Asian. Asian and minority ethnic, so yeah, then okay. everything else. Yeah. But as I said, some of those other groups are actually doing quite well in yeah, property. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I thought, no, this really, the name sums it up quite well. Um and what are you yeah. what is the goal what is what is so the, the goal for that group is is different to propel yeah. within the the black community but not just the black community there are others as well but i'd say typically for the if you come from a community that has been historically classified as sort of from the sort of lower socioeconomic perspective yeah. um things like financial literacy just didn't even come up well i mean barely come up in school let well, alone, well this is the thing you're yeah. not taught at school you're not taught at university yeah. you generally you, learn well from your parents from, if exactly. they've done well but exactly. if, obviously if your parents haven't been financially successful then where are you going to get that information from you've hit yeah. the nail on the head that is why I set up BPN as I call it brilliant because I know for me personally you know my mother worked so hard to be able to you know send me to the schools and the things that I went to that we weren't sitting at the table talking about, you know, am I using my ISA? I didn't even know what an ISA was back then. <laughs> like, so there are so many things that, you know, people from those groups just aren't getting. Mm. You're, for some people, they're lucky if they can, their parents are feeding them, they get to school and things like that. You're not talking about tax planning. You're not talking about mortgages. Well, absolutely. I think that's so important to get sort of that information through to yep. young people simple things like boy they seem simple now yep. but looking back again yep. I never knew what an ISA was yep. I never knew that <laughs> oh I've put this into a lifetime ISA and the government are going to give me 25% yep. towards my first deposit all these things that you just never consider absolutely so yeah. BPN is about empowering people but it's about teaching financial literacy we do it through property because a, it's what something I'm passionate about, but other people are passionate about it as well. So people understand it. Exactly. It's something that is relatable. Yeah. I could have set it up and started talking about bonds or something, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't have worked. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a, it's a way to bring people in, but to really give them the tools that they need. So even though people assume to me, oh, you did Propel and BPN, oh, they must be quite similar, just for different groups. Actually, no. It's Very about yeah. empowerment in completely different ways. Um, because the needs of both yeah. groups are completely completely different. Something else that comes up a lot within um, the BPN community is 
debt. Mm. A lot of people have a fear of debt. When my grandmother, my mother, when they were growing up, they were taught that debt is bad. Uh, Don't have credit cards. Don't take any debt if you can afford it. So I know people. That's such a generational yeah. thing as well, I, yeah. as well, isn't it? Because I just, I just remember first time I looked at getting a mortgage and, and trying to talk to my family about it. It mm-hmm. was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're nuts! Like, look yep. how much debt there is on that. And it's, yep. it, it, on paper, it does look slightly terrifying. Yep. But yeah. So I mean, there was somebody in the community who wanted to get um, just like a, she set up her own business and wanted to get a business loan. But she'd never had a credit card, so she doesn't have a credit history. So she's like, well, they're not giving me a loan because I don't have a credit history. And I said, well, you know, get a credit card yeah. and, you know, just use how, it for small things. You but you're, history, you're yeah. using the credit card to build your credit history. And she says, no, 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 but, you know, I can't get a credit card because debt is bad. And but, I'm like, <laughs> But it's, uh, yeah, just things like this, yep. I think, are so, so important for people to understand. It's a mm-hmm. bit like when people start their own business and take yep. income as a director's loan instead of sort of taking a taxable income and then they go to try and get a mortgage and, yep. oh, well, my taxable income is showing a zero. Zero, exactly. So I can't exactly. do it. And it's, yep. it's having that foresight to know, know about this. So it's just so, about yeah. sharing the knowledge, really. And it's not about me. Neither mm-hmm. Propel is about me nor BPN. I Yes, I share my story, but what I do in both of them is I bring other speakers in. Yeah. Um, I bring other experienced people to share their knowledge and you know their experiences because people in the audience are so varied they're going to resonate with yeah. with different people um and that is a key focus of both communities is about working with others who can add value to the community members as well brilliant so on to my next question starting and obviously scaling up this business mm-hmm. what have been some of the biggest struggles in well one starting the business and two yeah. scaling it I think for me starting the businesses the struggles I faced were quite personal because I had for want of a better word been institutionalized yeah. <laughs> um, to sort of launch myself into the you know entrepreneurial world where there aren't rules there aren't there isn't structure yeah. there's nobody sort of telling me what I need to be doing or setting targets um, if I'm very honest, initially it was really overwhelming. Um, and I remember the first few days sort of sitting at home, like, right, sitting at the table, setting up the office, sort of rearranging my pens 50 times, like, right, what do I do now? Um, so the actual getting started part was, yeah, challenging, just because I was so used to having structure. Like, in my old life, somebody could just tell me the time, like, oh, you know, 9.30, oh, that was when I'd go down and I'd get an extra piece of toast and I'd do something. And then 11 o'clock, I'd come back to my desk and I'd do X, Y, Z. So it was about setting up that structure for myself. Um, I'd been fortunate enough to go to business school, which was the best two years of my life. Don't tell my husband I said that. Because he's always like, what about when we got married? Um, but business school was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it really changed my whole mindset, actually, and just how I view the world and viewed business. But because I been through that in terms of the actual sort of strategy and you know marketing and all the things you need to think about when you're setting up a business I was able to sort of draw on that Um, I actually remember going around to my mother's house and rooting around in the attic and she's like what are you doing I'm like I need to find my like my my notes from business school because and she I remember she's like oh gosh what is she doing but I was able to draw on that to give me the sort of strategy and structure so once I'd 
got over the sort of routine or the lack of routine that I had at the beginning, yeah, I was able to really, really push it. And, you know, 2019 was a phenomenal year um, for both Propel and for BPN. Um, I won like quite a lot of awards and some of them I'm just like oh my goodness like yeah it's, it's incredible I remember seeing other people in those awards many many years ago and looking at them like you know. so what about once you'd started mm. what were some of the difficulties you had to overcome to actually whilst whilst growing the business so one of the ones I'm still battling with is finding the right people mm. finding good people yeah. is really really hard um, I you know, in, been interviewing for various different roles and just finding people that are switched on, that are committed. Um, Where's all the talent? <laughs> yeah, and also, I guess, I say the word millennials and then my husband's always remind me, like, you are a millennial. Um, but I, I don't really see myself as, like, some of them, some of the millennials out there. It's just completely different mindset in terms of work I remember interviewing somebody and I sort of said okay well if you came on board with us sort of where do you see yourself in like two three years and she says I don't know you know maybe I travel a bit by then you know because I could just uber for a bit and then and I was just like well this is an interview um yeah it's just completely different mindset I ask this question to a lot of people and this comes up Mm -hmm more often than not as mm. one of the, the biggest struggles at the moment yep. and uh, I'm and not also, really sure what can be done to overcome it and also yeah. they're not they're not motivated by the same things that I think people were historically motivated by like money for example mm. so I actually had this one incident where somebody that you know I had employed she wasn't very happy I assumed it was with her pay so I spoke to my team about it. I'm like, well, we can just pay her a bit more. It's fine. Like, please, you know, just go and speak to her. Mm. And then they came back to me and they're like, she doesn't want more money. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, what does she want? And they're like, she just wants to have a chat with you. And she just wants... Appreciation. Yeah, she just that, wants people to feel that, that they care. I'm like, I absolutely do care. And she's like, well, she doesn't feel it. And, and I was like, well, what is it that she wants? She's like, she just wants to be able to sit with you every now and again. And, and again, because I came from the corporate world, mm. it's just so different. I think, I think they did, I can't remember who did these studies, but one of the big, big things was um, about people in work, what mm. were the main drivers. And I think the biggest one was people feel its purpose. And so people in any role need to feel that their job is important and it provides a really good purpose. And um, I I used to run a different business alongside property, which had quite a lot of employees. And it was an absolute, I'm a terrible manager of people, (laughs) terrible. And it's for things like this that I'm bad at. It's when you're running a business, your baby, you're passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And to expect other people to be like that is it's not always the case yep. it's, you've got to sometimes you've got to kind of work out what motivates them is yep. it the stick is it the carrot mm-hmm. um, make sure people feel appreciated for yep. the roles that they do and well, why they are such an integral part and yeah. now one of my KPIs for my business is to focus on is that. one of the things I have to do monthly is to speak to people in my business mm-hmm. and it sounds really sort of cliche and silly but it's to show appreciation for yep. what they've done and yep. to explain why what they've done is really important for us moving forward. And that's something that I need to do something or more of that mm. as well because I think it was just something that 
I didn't necessarily focus on or just realize how important it was. And because my sort of career wasn't like that, it was very much about just get on with the job and, you know, mm. it's about the client, etc., etc. But the world has changed and I need to change. And it's not going to be easy for me. It no. isn't. It doesn't come naturally to me. Um, but it's something that I know I need to work on. Adapt or die. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what do you feel are the biggest risks at the moment to your business? Now, not the industry as a whole, but mm-hmm. your business. And what are you putting in place at the moment to mitigate those? Um, so I guess a typical risk with any business. There are competitors. There are other people doing the same thing as you. But I think that in terms of, you know, those risks, it's just about making sure you have clearly identified what your USPs are. Yeah. And whenever you're in a client-facing role, or whether you have end consumers, it's about delivering on service and having a high-quality service. You know, other things in your business you can sort of fix as you go along. But when you're facing people, you have to be consistent with a high level of service because once you lose that trust is very hard to get it back. How do you measure that? So I guess in a, a variety of ways, we do regularly ask for feedback yeah. and we will solicit it. So we will reach out to people, sit down with them and saying, how is this going for you? What has worked? What, it's what hasn't worked? it's hard to get feedback from clients once they've it is, done something. But what it? I find is that people often vote with their feet. Yeah. Well, so exactly. if you're if, if not they, doing if an a investor good, comes back and invest again, that's <laughs> exactly, a good sign that exactly. they were happy with the service. If you're not doing a good job, yeah. people don't come back. Yeah. They'll probably get to the end of the cycle or get to the end of that project or if they're a member of Papel, you know, get to the end of the membership, for example, but then they won't come back. Yeah. So I think you look at your repeat customers, your repeat investors, um, and that is, gives you a good indication of how well you're doing. And also referrals. Yeah. When people start to refer other people, it's a good sign mm. that you're doing well. Sometimes you do need to give them a friendly nudge and just remind them that you would Absolutely, like a because sometimes yeah. it doesn't even occur to people. <laughs> exactly. And for me, that even stems way back to you know being a wealth advisor. Yeah. Initially, I built my business <laughs> the hard way. Um, I had you know a desk, some business cards, and a phone. And yes, I had training, but nobody told me who to call to be a yeah. client. I figured it out by myself. And then when I built up my core base, the fastest way to grow is by referrals because people can tell about their experiences and they will sell yeah. it better than you. And they've got trust. But you do have to remind them yeah. because this happened to me. I brought it up once and I was umming and ahhing like, can I ask? Shouldn't I ask? And I'm like, actually, he's happy. I'm going to ask. Yeah. And then he says, oh, I didn't even think about that. Yes, my brother and this person and this person and this person. And that is now what I do with my businesses today. So I always say to like, you know, women in Propel, you know, please do share what yeah. you're doing and shout about us you know we want to help as many people as possible if you're if you think we're doing a good job that you know please talk about it and if you think we're not doing a good job then still talk about it and tell me and, and it sounds silly but it's it's such a important thing that people don't do people mm-hmm. don't go out asking their yep. clients for referrals yep. yeah, and particularly with investors yeah. if you have an investor and the relationship has gone well yeah. Ask them if they oh, know other people. Absolutely. And you they, don't and have they, to. And they probably will. Yes, you <laughs> yeah. don't have to go out and yeah. find every single investor for your yeah. business yourself. Referral and word of mouth is the best and I feel fastest way to yeah. grow organically. Brilliant advice. Yeah. So, last question then. Yep. What is the kindest thing someone's done for you in business? Okay. So this is a very, very recent example, something that's happening at the moment. I had a lady reach out to me uh, on social media 
She runs another women's organization, very successful. They've been going for years. Um, her membership is actually very high and women pay. So she has nailed it. Um, and I mean, you know, Propel is, is fairly new. Um, you know, it's only been around. I mean, I came up with the idea sort of back end of 2018. Um, and she reached out to me and she's like, you know, let's meet for coffee. And I mean, of course I want to meet her for coffee. But I was a bit like, mm, why does she want to meet me? So I went to meet her and then she was like, right, so tell me about what you're doing. How can I help you? She's like, right, you need to do this and focus on this, this, this. And I remember like afterwards thinking like, why is she helping me? And again, this could be, you know, one of the things about, you know, where I grew up. But in the corporate world, you know, unfortunately, women particularly don't really help other women. It's mm. something that absolutely needs to change. But I guess it make, makes me just a bit sceptical. And I was like, what does she want? Like, <laughs> what does she want from me? Like, how is she trying to yeah. sort of trip me up or trick me? And then, you know, a friend said to me, I should, maybe she's just being kind. Maybe she just wants to help you. Why is that so alien to yeah. you? And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to embrace this. This is incredible. This woman has, she doesn't even live in London. She's come down. She's found some time to sit with me. She wants to help me. Um, she's not she probably getting, believes in what you're doing. Yeah, so. she's not getting anything out of it for herself. It's not like she's asked for referrals or anything. She, I, yeah, I genuinely think she believes in the vision of Propel and what we're trying to do. It's about women in property coming together. And although it's completely separate to her community, she recognizes what we're doing and she, you know, wants to help me mm. and help the community. So, yeah, that Fantastic. is, yeah. Well, I think. That's all the questions <laughs> I had for you, and you've answered them amazingly. Well, so thank you so much. Thank you very much no, for coming along. No, it's been an absolute pleasure to I mean, be here, and like, I mean, the surroundings are incredible. I'm going <laughs> to come back here. <laughs> I think you should. Yeah. So, if people want to kind of get in touch with you and find mm -hmm. out a bit more about Propel, yep. um, or the other businesses you've got, mm -hmm. how can they get in contact? So, with you? I am on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. So, it's just Aisha Ofori, yep. or people can find me through Instagram. So, Propel has its own Instagram. Um, Black property network has its own instagram i have an instagram or facebook brilliant okay well thanks very much no pleasure thank, thank you, you so much please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on the rodcast